Welcome to the first ever podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Baum. Happy holidays. This is the, uh, this is, I guess this is the Christmas episode, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, so yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, my guest today is Michael Malarkey. He is a musician and an actor who's known for being on shows like The Vampire Diaries and, uh, most recently show called Project Blue Book. Uh, I met Michael under really kind of interesting, cool circumstances. Um, we don't get into it on the show here, but, uh, our backstory between he and I knowing each other is, um, my mother before she passed actually was a big fan of the show, the vampire diaries. And, um, a couple months after she had passed away back in 2014, um, someone tagged me in a photo of one of the actors who was on the show wearing a Touche Amore shirt, which just completely floored me and made me just think like, oh my God, if my mom would have seen this, she would have lost her mind. Just, you know, like cast member from her favorite show, you know, wearing her son band's t-shirt. So, um, you know, I, I had reached out to him um, via social media. He happened to be in LA around that time. Um, and yeah, we ended up meeting up and getting coffee a couple of years later and realized just how much we had in common. Um, we're, we're really close in age, uh, love a lot of the same music. Um, he comes from like a punk hardcore, uh, background and, um, yeah, so we, you know, we connected really well and ended up going to a show together. We went to go see the band page 99, um, here in LA, it was page 99 majority rule and, uh, oh wait, the majority rule play. I don't know. It was page 99 and portrayal of guilt. I know that for a fact. Uh, and yeah, so no, it was majority rule. Yes, they did play. Um, so yeah, we, we bonded over that and, uh, have stayed, you know, internet pals or, you know, text friends or whatever. So, um, he was something that I was really excited to have come on the show because, uh, yeah, he's done really well for himself. He's been on a couple really big shows and he's been an actor for a long time. And, um, he also makes music that is, uh, that is very good and very interesting. Um, so yeah, this was my, uh, this is my conversation with Michael. Um, I hope you enjoy, uh, this is the first ever podcast and I hope everyone has a safe holiday season. Michael, thank you so much for, uh, for your time this morning or this afternoon. You're officially the earliest guest that I've ever had at 9am here in, in Southern California, only for you. Well, got to bless the time differences, eh? It's, uh... <laughs> so it's funny. I was, you know, I do my attempt at, you know, uh, journalism and, and research and whatever. So uh, I, I didn't realize. So you were born in Lebanon? Yes, Beirut in 1983. My dad was, um, he's American, but um, he was teaching at the American University of Beirut. My mom was a student there. And that's where they met and where I began. And obviously, 83 in Beirut was an absolutely abysmal time. Uh, arguably, it's, it's continued like that for a long time. But this, this particular time in that year was extremely violent. All the civil wars and the unrest, people being um, assassinated, etc. I mean, my, we had friends who aren't with us anymore. And, um, you know, our, our apartment, our house got bombed out and we were living in bomb shelters. I don't remember any of this. But it's also why my mom thinks I'm into heavy music because of my uh, beginnings in a, a war zone. Um, but yeah, it was it was a gnarly um, beginning 
to my life that I don't remember, obviously. And then my dad ended up getting a job in Ohio. So as a result, I ended up moving there when I was um, a, a toddler. Okay. Got it. Yeah. yeah. And so what what was the job that brought him to? Because I saw it's like Yellow Springs, Ohio, which looks like it's like just outside of Dayton. Yes, sir. Yellow Springs, Ohio is a very small town. It's considered a village and it's uh, got about 4,000 residents. It's very liberal. It's home of Antioch University, which is where my dad went and taught. So he's an anthropologist okay. and he ended up teaching the classics curriculum and um, all that stuff. It's, it's funny why I also was, when I was also looking up the location, um, are you familiar, I'm sure you are, with that movie Gummo? It's oh, yeah. It's like yeah. Xenia, Ohio is like right there, which is where it's supposed to supposedly took place. I know they didn't film it there, but like I remember on tour once I drove past the Xenia, Ohio sign on the highway and I made us pull off and take a dangerous <laughs> photo just because I just as a fan of Gummo, I was like, holy shit. Uh, no, incredible reference there. And, you know, you couldn't be more... Uh, there couldn't be more antithesis between a resident of Xenia and a resident of Yellow Springs. It's literally, you know, uh, people would come into our town. We had There's a street fair where all the local artisans would set up shop. The main streets closed down. The, the elementary school lawn is a parking lot. And people come from all over to get that hippie stuff. You know, tie-dye shirts and glass blown and uh, all different kinds of things. But, um, yeah. It's a cool town. I'm blessed to have grown up there in a place that was like a real hotbed of arts and uh, community. And one of the things that I that I don't, I, I think I I take for granted with Ohio. Um, I played there enough times, but it's one of those states that uh, you don't realize how many how many bigger cities there are all within you know an hour hour and a half. Because yeah, it looks like you know you're you're closest to Dayton, but also Columbus and Cincinnati are probably like what, two hours away or something like that. Did, uh, yeah. did that well, kind of help being sort of central to those places with finding culture in general? Absolutely. I mean, there was, there was so much culture within Yellow Springs, but it was all very, very left. I found myself spending a lot of time in Dayton, going to shows at Bogarts in Cincinnati, you know, going to Columbus. Legion of Doom was like a really cool underground uh, screamo grindcore house. Oh wow! And loads of wicked shows would come through there. I don't know if it's still open, but you know, it was like a collective of people living there and putting on shows. And you got little cool things like that in out outside of some of those cities. But um, yeah, and Cleveland's Cleveland's a little further up north. We're like southwest ish. Right, 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 right. So when you were, it's also it's funny when I was. I just want to know. I don't know if we ever realized it or talked about it, but you and I are the same age as of of, of like di a difference of like two months or something. Which I don't know. Oh, if yeah. I, I realized that when we became friends, I was like, oh, we're both born in eighty three. All right. Well, it made perfect nice. sense in a way, according to some of the music we were talking about. Totally. Like, we we like listen to pretty much all the same records growing up. Totally. I have. It's funny of all the friends that I the that I follow on on social media. I really enjoy when you just post the music you're listening to, because so much of it is so, so wildly eclectic that, um, you know, not to speak for you here, but I, I have a feeling that you, one of the things that you enjoy with the platform that you have is exposing your audience to a wild a variety of music that you're influenced by. Is that, is that kind of fair to say? Yeah. Well, just exposing myself to them in general, man. No, <laughs> um, no <laughs> just playing. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I, I've always had that record store geek, bug. And to be honest, I, I, I love what I do and I don't care how it's interpreted, but I love to share. 
you know, and um, that's something that I've always lived by and encourage other artists to live by too. You know, you don't need to be trying to be anything other than what you are and your offering is important. Sure. Um, but I started off working at a record store called Dingleberries, great name. Nice. And there were two yeah. locations, one in Yellow Springs, uh, fittingly, and one in Dayton. And um, I basically, it was run by this dude, Greg Savage, and his, and his uh, wife, Beverly. And it was an independent mom and pop shop that had been around since like the late 70s, or I mean the late 60s, early 70s. And they used to have all these in stores with all these hippie bands and um, very big vinyl uh, situation going on. And, you know, he was kind of a little jaded by the time I started working there, you know, 30 years after its inception or whatever. And um, he was just basically like, Mikey, I don't know. I don't know what to, the kids are listening to these days. I don't know how to kind of <laughs> do the Internet thing. Like, can you can you like find the cool stuff? And so I was kind of the, you know, not quite appointed, but under the table appointed uh point guard or whatever. And I'd, I'd read all the magazines, you know, the, the racks of magazines, all different genres. You know, I'd read about electronic music. Um, I obviously gravitated more towards punk, hardcore, um, post-punk, all that kind of stuff. But I, I found myself just like reading all the reviews, as many liner notes as I could, see which bands were thanking other bands, look those bands up. And it, it's, it's never stopped. So I got completely right. hooked when I started working there and having that much information at my fingertips. Now you can get all that online, but then I was literally re, re, re um, I was um, leaning on the mags and also just word of mouth people who'd come in, yeah, play stuff, and you have a conversation like it's like a a social event. It used to be a social event going to a record store. You bring your coffee, you hang out. You talk to the dude behind the desk, uh, which was me. Uh, or right. if I went to other record stores, I'd always go, you know, chat them up and see what they got. And you know how it is. Yeah. How old were you when you started working at the record store? So that was like one of my first jobs after high school. I had a, I had a mohawk at the time. I was in my punk phase, um, which many people don't know about because, you know, there's not a lot of pictures of that time because photos steal your soul, man. Um, at least that's what I thought at the time. <laughs> it's also before it was. All, yeah, it was also before uh, iPhone. So it, that's you right. have to have had like a, a you know like a disposable camera photo anyway. Pager. Totally. Uh, <laughs> uh, exactly. So I, I was probably seventeen when I first started at the record store, or eighteen. Damn! Again, seriously, you and I have such like I started working at a record store in Burbank. At, I started the Saturday after I graduated high school, and I was there for really. Like, four years yeah man what about the customers that were day like daily stop by but like did you have people who just like hung out but literally never bought a single thing would just come like not even music lovers just come in and just want to talk did you yeah i feel like all all these record stores get those people yeah yeah well it's, it's music it's a safe place and it goes beyond uh i don't know uh it, it's 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 something that connects so many people on a level that's completely human and emotional and anybody if they dig a band that you like you're like man you must be good people you get, if you mm-hmm. get that shit then i get you and i feel like you you have people that gravitate toward that sometimes they don't even know why like i feel like i want to go in there 
And there, and I always felt this magic every time I went into a new record store, if it was one that took pride in itself. Um, right. You go in there and you're, you're immersed in this world of other people's interpretation of what music means to them. And I really loved being a part of something like that. And it's never left me like in my psyche. It's like it's still a record store in my soul. <laughs> right. And it's like, I want to, I actually want to ask you, because this is something that, you know, not many people get to experience or, or whatever. And, and I'm just curious for you. So when you started working there, would you say that working behind a counter in a record store helped you open up a bit socially and made you kind of a little bit more comfortable in your own skin talking to strangers? Because it certainly did for me. Absolutely. I mean, so my, my, and I, I was extremely shy before. I, I, well, the end of my high school years, I suppose I started, you know, being a little crazy and all that jazz, but that was the first time I was more forced to, like you said, talk to strangers and initiate stuff. And, um, you just feel weird if you don't, I suppose you're forced to do it It's trial by fire. So, so we can go back a bit. I'm curious, what was your first experience connecting with like, uh, we can, I mean, obviously you're, you're an, you're an actor and you're also a musician, so we could do both. Like what was your first co experience connecting with movies and TV? Like did, what, did you have uh, like a favorite TV show that you remember as a kid or in a favorite movie that you were like in awe of? Oh man, so many. I, I mean, I definitely started out watching X-Men. That was the cartoon. Nice. My, my parents yep. actually didn't allow us to watch television. So I grew up in kind of the woods we had a tv there was one tv in my parents bedroom in a locked cabinet and so we basically got to choose one show per week that we could watch and we'd all pile into my mom's and dad's bed the three brothers and watch the show and uh very very rustic <laughs> beginnings um and x-men was was my favorite i was always just fascinated with with that whole world gambit was my favorite character and um i just like again kind of epic so, mythology. so much in common was he yeah. your favorite too so, yeah because i, I liked him because he was yet. they haven't yeah because he was he was always like the snarky one uh yeah it's the same reason like Raphael was my favorite ninja turtle because yeah because yeah. he was this the snarky kind of dickhead that's right. um, just like us that's snarky a, dickheads exactly <laughs> <laughs> I remember. Um, I feel like it was like a sun, it was like a Sunday morning cartoon, correct? Kind of. Did it play Sunday mornings? Because I kind of remember, remember that a little bit. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't know. It was it, it was definitely my first experience with 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 television was was um, X Men. Yeah. What about film? Like, is that? I mean, if you're if your folks were were you know uh, protective of the TV and things like that, was there? Do you remember like a favorite movie or like seeing a movie for the first time or anything like that? I definitely remember the first movie that I became obsessed with, and it was Edward Scissorhands. And um, that was a lot to do with me first dealing with heartbreak, I suppose, mm -hmm. and having a void after you've been with that first person that you love. And I, for some reason, that winter, I watched that movie over and over. And something to do with the score, too. So this segues to music a bit and my fascination and interest with um, score. Um, the importance of music in movies is, is huge. And not only that, but sound editing. And I, I started to realize I had a real ear for 
sound and the importance of sound. Um, and, and I think is also about the story of this, you know, this outsider who's misunderstood, which is what I felt like, because I'd gone around to like five different schools um, um, before I even graduated from high school. And I was always a new kid. I was always the outsider. And until I found punk rock, I didn't know who I was, I suppose, or I didn't connect with anything, you know, I was kind of floating, felt like Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> Um, but then finding punk rock, I mean, that segues into my first um, experience with music. Besides my my mom and dad's Beatles cassette back in the day, which I played the shit out of. But this is different. The first time I connected with music on my terms was Operation Ivy. And um, okay. finding, you know, because I started listening to punk ska. That was my that was my first real passion for for music, where it was it was energetic. It was positive to a degree. It was political. It was saying something. It was creating this energy. And the first time I went to a show was Less Than Jake and Real Big Fish, I believe. Nice. And yeah. my first pit, the first time I crowd surfed, the first time uh, first time I did did a show, capital D. Yeah. And I, I mean, it was a it was a almost an out-of-body experience, you know, and just feeling that communal energy that was rough, but it was positive. People were just like screaming lyrics, excited to be there and not afraid to get down and dirty. So after you started connecting with that music, did you, is that when you decided you wanted to start playing music? Like, did you, did you, you know, start thinking about starting a band or anything like that? Yeah, well, I always had this premonition that, I could and wanted to do something like that. And, you know, I got into Rancid pretty hardcore and, and Out Come the Wolves was a very seminal record for me. I lived in Cameroon in Africa for a while and that was one of the records I had with me that I played the shit out of. But um, when I came back, I went to a different high school and my senior project in Yellow Springs, which is where I graduated, was to throw a concert, a big outdoor amphitheater festival and um, I did it. Wow. So basically, I collected about 10 local bands. I, uh, you know, did the time slots, sold tickets, put up flyers everywhere, went around to all the local record shops and stuck them on tree uh, telephone poles and right. um, it broke, broke even. So we got enough people to come out to make it make it worthwhile but also it was just a cool event because it was in the amphitheater in yellow springs where um they do outdoor shakespeare it's connected to antioch university you just mentioned moments ago about going to africa so what like do you have like a like a quick timeline of of where you all lived because that's pretty fascinating to all of a sudden just like hop over there yeah well i was i was going to some high school in centerville and got into a little trouble my folks pull, pulled me out and I got a random call from an uncle I have down there in uh, Africa and he does a lot of work in the communities and um, was like, hey, Michael, if you ever want to come down to Africa, you know, we could put you in a school here. And I was like, fuck yeah. Hey, mom, dad, I'm going to Africa. <laughs> and they're like, okay. Damn. And yeah. they basically had arranged it, which I didn't know till years later to try to shake the shake the devil out of me 
<laughs> but how was that experience? Was was that just like a total culture shock from what you were used to? Completely, but it was absolutely transformative. I mean, as you think it would be. Um, sure. Being old and wise as we are now, but back then it was it, it was when you know I said I was shy and stuff. Up until that point, that's what really pulled me out of that shyness, I suppose, was being in Africa because I had to go to a French school and I didn't speak barely a lick of French. And so I was literally having to communicate with a tiny, tiny pinpoint of language. So you start reading body language, you start analyzing faces, trying to get what people mean. And that's where I started coming into my own, I suppose, with that more limited uh, need for language. Because there's an incredible amount of anxiety that comes with finding the right words and making sure you say the right thing. And I, I suppose when that was gone, I was just hanging out, just part of the gang. And, um, you know, we hung out on the rooftops. I found skater friends there, and we listened to Nirvana Bleach and driving around seven deep in a four-seater, you know, surfing, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's it really where I, where I came into my own as a, as a young, young person. Were you about like 15, 16 at the time or something? Yeah. Yeah. I had my 16th okay. birthday there. Wow. How incredible. I'm curious. I'd be wondering, or I'd, I wonder if you being put in that situation, having to get used to body language and things like that, if that played a role in you uh, finding your comforts in, in acting and performing like that. Oh, you know absolutely. what I'm saying? Because I have to imagine so much of that is reading off the other person body language wise and, and all of that. Absolutely. Well, they, they you know, the, the best actors are reactors, you know, I mean, you, you, I forget who said it, someone like Betty Davis or something. She's like, I don't have to do anything. I just react, let, let everybody else do the acting. And yet she's the one who gets the credit. I mean, if you're, if you're empathetic like that and you tune into the frequencies, it's about giving back the frequencies. There's an element of like Kung Fu, I suppose, to acting. You have to be on that same, you, or you have to find their level because you're not always going to work with people that are as in tune as you are. And it's about being able to trick them into getting on the level, I suppose, by reacting, throwing them curveballs. It's all about being in the moment, you know, being able to let everything else disappear and just play the scenes. And that totally comes down to the other person, reading into the other. Yeah. 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 So when, at what point did you get the acting bug? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a crazy story. So I was in the record store. I was playing in three bands. So my main band I was in was called Shady Side. There's still a band camp up. I've been actually talking to them about doing some stuff again, which which we have some material we've been fiddling around with. And it's, I mean, they're amazing musicians, but everyone's had to go their own way doing jobs, having kids and all that. But now's the time when people have really wanted to get back to certain things. You know, go back to the fork in the road, analyze it. You know, the whole COVID thing has, has created a lot of those feelings, I think. And connecting with people you haven't done in a while, done so in a while. Um, anyway, I digress. So I basically was working at the record store. I was playing in Shady Side. I had like a metal side project going on where I was playing guitar and singing. And then I was doing this EDM electronic music thing with this uh, dude. And um, so I got a script at this point from an old theater director I'd done kids theater with way back in the day. 
And he was like, Michael, I think you'd be perfect to try out for this. We're doing it at the community college, Sinclair Community College down the road. Uh, I'd love for you to look at the role of the king and come audition. And I was like, wow, I'm not really doing that. I'm kind of doing the music thing, you know, but go ahead and send me the script. You know, I'm always one to say, um, say yes, at least at first. It's just see sure. what the thing's about, you know. But yeah. the power of no is, is amazing as well. Um, and so I, I read the script. It was a Commedia dell'arte play, which is the Italian comedy, very rooted in slapstick. And um, it's the kind of stuff they take around on like a river barge and perform at different communities along the way, you know, an old school theater troupe. And um, I was just blown away at how mad the story was. It was this fairy tale about this kingdom with this stuttering prime minister who usurps the throne with some soul-swapping magical spell, all kinds of like filthy shenanigans with other characters and all this. And I was like, what? I didn't know acting could be like this. I didn't know this is what theater could be like. You know, you think of it as very prim and proper when you're younger, like, oh, theater. <laughs> and um, I auditioned, but I was more interested in the villain role, the stuttering usurper. And um, I got it. And so I end up doing this play. I tell my band, um, you know, I'm taking a little break. They're all worried. And um, I basically won an award, a local award, a Daytona award, and a Irene Ryan nomination for my performance. And for me, at that time, not knowing my trajectory really or where I wanted to go, it was that kind of... Um, encouragement that I needed to be like, okay, I can do this. And I'm curious, what, what was it like for you that first time acting in front of an audience? I know you said you did um, some child theater and things like mm. that. Um, I'm imagining the, the feelings were mighty different between doing it as a kid and doing it in the situation you were in. But yeah, what was it like for you as like an older, as an older person doing it? Yeah, I, I was also like playing one of the leads of the show too. Whereas in the kids sure. theater, I was always just like a chorus member, frog in the background or something like that. <laughs> right. And, sure. um, you know, as somebody who dealt with a lot of anxiety, it was definitely nerve wracking at first. And I'll never forget my legs quivering and that feeling of just being looked at and you can't run away or fight them. <laughs> There's no fight or flight in performance, you know, and uh, that feeling of fear, you just as an artist, as a musician, as a performer, you learn that it's just energy. It's something that's pouring into you because you need it to be channeled um, in a way that supports you. It's, it's literally fear is just misplaced adrenaline that we interpret as fear and we just start to fear the fear itself. And yet when you start to learn, and this is something I've learned over years of being in the industry, by the way, I'm, I'm, it's not something that came easily, but I started to be able to learn to turn that energy into action. And that's when I started to finally work well as an actor. So you moved to, uh, you moved to, to London in, I think it was, I saw it was like 2006. So you're probably, so, you know, obviously I'm good at doing the math here because we're the same age. You're about 23 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, how was how was that just complete adjustment going over there and then being like now i'm in school you know like was that uh, being 23 you know like 
were you at all anxious about coming in maybe a little late or like or seemingly late or or how did that feel with that adjustment? Hmm. I don't think I was worried about that too much because like you, I chose the school of rock and roll for my university right. experience and it serves me well. It, it, it created um, who I am today. And I think going in there, I felt like I always had that as part of who I was as opposed to just turning up in a university and not knowing who the fuck I was. Sure. Where I think a lot of people just find themselves in uh, university experience. And Yeah, like I would be curious to know, I would be curious to know what it, like if, had you have gone there, you know, right out of high school, uh, mm. if you would have, you know, quote unquote lasted, or if maybe having those years of experience outside of high school, playing in bands, opening yourself up to these, you know, human experiences, and then going there, you know, at 23, I'm sure you know, it helped dramatically. Would you, would you think so? Absolutely. I mean, a hundred percent. I feel like to be honest, any actors that have a life beforehand, um, have a lot more to draw from. There's a lot of people in the industry that, that just are, are born into it. And yeah, you get some good actors out of that, but at the same time, how can you really pretend to be certain people if you've not spent time with them or met them or had those experiences. You know, I went, I've had all kinds of experiences, run-ins with the law, um, you know, done my time in community service and all that stuff and had to work with real, in real dark situations. And I, I feel like all that experience and that coupled with being on the road and touring as a, as a hardcore band, just having to wing it and figure it out, meet new people just has always given me a wealth of, material and also just a backbone i think that's 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 the key really is that like i can i, I pride myself on being able to be thrown into any situation and be able to get along with people i can communicate with anybody and a lot of that comes with those experiences of, of being on the road and working in the record store how was your experience at that school like did you did it did it take you a minute to get used to it or were you just dove in head first and just Loved it. And how long were you there? I dove in head first. I mean, it was the first time I had a, a focus that was in a curriculum that I cared about and believed in. You know, all through high school, I thought it was bullshit. I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't connect. You know, there's a few teachers here and there. And those, those classes I did well in because of the teachers. It's, it's right. funny how that works. <laughs> and then you started doing theater out of there or, because I saw, you know, like comparing your, your theater credits as well as your acting credits it looks like in 2009 you did a you did a play called uh, inches apart and then you also did a short film at that same time um where's that you kind of testing the waters on what you liked more no i i would have loved to that have been for that to have been the case but at, in the early days you know I, I graduated drama school and then i spent a year just working in bars and restaurants living in london getting to know it like the back of my hand living in different boroughs and stuff. And that also was very important for me to be able to be a professional actor was being becoming a civilian again after being in the weird magic world of drama school, um, which is very much a bubble. And you're getting fed all this stuff. You're thinking solely about the industry. And I always say to anybody who is wanting to go into the arts to, um, to never be, never have your, never have tunnel vision. You know, you can't be solely focused on your craft because who's the person there? You know, 
you're not defined by what you do. And uh, it's important to be open-minded to experience and life. And uh, it forced me to do that, really, by becoming a civilian again. And it took me a year to get my first gig, um, which was inches apart. And that was um, something that we created, me and my uh, thrown-together group of actors from, from Lambda. And we won the Old Vic New Voices Award to devise our own theater piece, which was um, mainly rooted in physical melodrama. It was kind of a real kooky thing. And um, yeah, that was cool. And that, But my first real break was doing um, a Eugene O'Neill play and a Tennessee Williams play um, called Beyond the Horizon and Spring Storm, respectively, both of their first plays. And our director, Laurie Sansom, was doing this in Northampton at the Royal Theater, Royal and Derngate. And it w- I was playing basically the lead guy in, in both plays simultaneously. So we rehearsed them in tandem. We performed them in tandem. Um, so some weeks we'd do like a few of one show and a few of the other. So it was basically having two entire plays in your head um, at any given time. Yeah, for the, for the sake of the show with first experiences, I'd be curious to ask you what your first uh, time auditioning for something on television was like and if what your memories of that would be. Because that's I have to imagine that's just such a different kind of way of performing if you're just doing it maybe in front of a couple people or you're doing it in front of a camera and it's just maybe Absolutely. you and the camera. You, yeah. you have to change your performance slightly to suit. It's like for you if you're doing a show in a small club or if you're playing a stadium. You have to change something slightly to suit the room, right? Right. Even if it's just an energy shift or you need to start looking up and honor the balcony, right? If there's a mezzanine. Um, And for the camera, it's picking up the smallest details. So you're like a fly in a jar. And I felt like that initially when I was doing my first film auditions. I was terrified of doing too much. So I I probably did fuck all <laughs> but <laughs> right i uh i really was petrified of doing camera work um just because i i don't know i was i, I was able to hide behind certain thing on stage and all of a sudden i had to be so much more honest and yet so much smaller and um i thought about it too much i think that's what my issue was is like my i was thinking with my head too much about how i should perform as opposed to just finding the honesty and and letting that channel flow. Um, and there's not that much of a difference, but you do, as a film actor, become more aware that um, simplicity is the key, that a little goes a real long way if you mean it. And it's not about performing, it's about meaning it really. And the performance comes out of that truth. And um, that's something, again, that I learned through after doing tv for a number of years but at first i did not and i don't remember my first audition but i do remember the first gig i got which was yeah i was gonna ask you what that was like in front and doing that on camera in that situation how that felt yeah so i was doing i was actually doing the shows at the national at that time and i booked this short film called ghost in the machine and i was playing a cowboy who was in the main character's vision of who would whisk her away from her shit farm situation. And she was like kind of a overweight northern lass. And um, she would she was dreaming that she's on a horse and this cowboy's coming and saying, 
what do I got to do to get you to leave with me, Noreen? I remember that was the first line. And I was putting on this kind of Western accent. And my, I could, when I watched it back, I was absolutely horrified because my mouth was was just doing this weird thing because I was doing the accent. So I'm kind of, it looks like I've got some kind of issue going on, like from a car crash or something. But anyway, I was horrified. And I realized just how specific, you know, you have to be and how loose and, and uh, it was it was a hard thing to watch that. But the cool thing about that show is that I did some score for that. I, I created some stuff on acoustic because he liked the idea of having certain acoustic stores. So I was listening to Ry Cooter and I, I developed some little things that we mixed with some guy doing symphonic stuff. And then I have a song in, in the medley, a song I wrote called Ghost, which I wrote for, for, the, for, the, for the film. So that was a cool aspect to that as well. And, and, and this is first when my music started to come back. You know, I took a break, obviously the band broke up, but I, I bought a guitar as soon as I got to London and was writing all through my time at Lambda. So I'd written about three full lengths worth of material by the time I graduated. And um, this was my, but I never, I'd always just share it with friends, send it to family. And I never really thought about putting stuff out. Um, and this is when I first started thinking, oh, wait, hang on. I'm a lot more comfortable with this now. And I have something to say. I feel a little more inclined to, after playing people that aren't you for a long time, you want to remember who you are. So I, I guess I, I started diving a bit deeper down into that. And that started happening more when I played Elvis in the West End. So it's I, I was about to ask about that. Mm. Yeah, that show Million Dollar Quartet. I was curious if that was a musical. It was, yeah. And we all played live. Yeah. No backing track. We changed the solos and stuff every once in a while. But, you know, this drum, uh, double bass on stage. Um, Carl Perkins with the guitar, Jerry Lee Lewis on the keys, Elvis and Johnny Cash on acoustic and me on electric a couple times. But it was um, another trial by fire because you like all those people like like you you sort of place from what I was reading. I, I I apologize, I don't know much about the musical, but I was I was reading into it, and it seems like it's like all the performances are kind of like the hits by all of these different characters in it. Is that is that right? Is that correct? Yeah. So it's based on the day back in 1956, December or something, um, around this time, um, where they all were in the same room together and. Um, Sam Phillips was like, it was a Carl Perkins recording session. He had this new dude on the keys. He wanted to him to play on a Carl Perkins uh, record, Jerry Lee Lewis. At the time, he was not really well known, except for being a bit of a wild boy. And um, Johnny Cash was in town. Um, there's a story fabricated where he's talking about his contract, but it gives a little history of the whole time period of what was going on with each character. So it's excusable, but... Then Elvis is in town, swings by the studio, and they all just had a jam. And you can listen to these uh, tapes on online, you know, um, of what they actually played. They did a bunch of like Christmas songs, gospel, uh, country weepers, and other things. And um, it's basically happening in real time and where they stumble into a song. How about this one? And then they start showing off for each other and 
And then at the end, there's like a medley where we all these sparkly jackets come down out of the way, out of the rafters, and we put them on and and play like all the hits people have come to see. So there was a kitsch nature to the end, but it was it was super fun, and I was drenched in sweat by the end of every show. Yeah, and I saw in like 2012. It's it seems like it was your last year doing doing uh doing plays, but I saw like yeah, you played uh Jay Gatsby and the Great Gatsby. That's got, that had to have been a big undertaking. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a that was a fun one. It was a immersive theater experience <laughs> at Wilton's Music Hall, which is one of is the oldest surviving music hall there. Um, beautiful building, and um, I basically wanted to play Gatsby as subtle as possible because I was already starting to want to do TV, and I was enjoying the the idea of, you know, simplicity a lot. And he wanted stuff big. So he came from a touring theater background. They tour Europe with English plays, so they'd have to be much more expressive with the language. And I fought tooth and nail to keep it, keep it simple. Um, but it was a good, it was a great experience. And it involved music. We'd take old songs and did acapella. I was all acapella. Um, so we did it. There wasn't music incorporated with that. Um, but again, I, I went back. There's so many full circles in my career with music and acting. So when I was going to release my first EP, Feed the Flames, I basically, we weren't sure which venue to use. And I was like, hang on a second. Because I got on well with the, the artistic director and um, her partner at Wilton's. And I just hit them up on email. I was like, yo, I know you, nobody can really book your venue, but can I to just one night do my show? And they were like, hell yeah. And they were like, how did you get Wilton's? Like everybody in the music industry were like, what the hell? Um, but we set it up beautifully, like a bunch of lights and sold out. And um, it was another cool full circle in my weird career where both careers have intertwined so many times. It's fun. I want I when looking through your IMDb because obviously in 2013 is when you is when you get the Vampire Diaries. But I was I was curious of a show that I don't know if it got syndicated over here that I'd looked at the the casting and that show Mr. Sloan you did a couple episodes of the fact that it has Nick Frost and Olivia Coleman. I was like, what the hell show was this? Was yeah. that like a, was it a comedy? How yeah. cool! Like yeah. that's like yeah. such a killer combo of of actors. It was it was written by Bob Wide who people know from, you know, he did stuff with Larry, uh, Kirby Enthusiasm guy. Okay. Um, but he, he's got a cool, similar off kilter sense of humor. Um, but it's about, I, I, I was in two episodes, I think it's a small part, but I was playing her like right, yeah. rock and roll boyfriend who was in a band and <laughs> it was a bit of a, you know, he's like, what free love, you know, he's all about that. And she wasn't cool with it right. basically. But um, it was a fun role. I had a weird wig I was wearing, like a, <laughs> a Ramones-ish kind of wig. And, nice. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't have any scenes with Olivia Coleman, who's a phenomenal actress. She's definitely one of my favorites. Definitely. But, um, definitely yeah, I mean, Nick Frost. But yeah, my my turn to to screen was was a similar no thing too. I basically was like, I just want to focus on screen stuff at a certain point, and I just plowed ahead. Just forcing them to get stuff that that was in on screen more and um, then i got the selection and then how did how did the vampire diaries come your way was it you just get sent a script or sent something and you were like well i guess i'll audition for this and 
and it ended up going well? Yeah, well, I mean, at that stage, you audition for everything. You know, you just you're just happy to get paid. Um, and the selection was what I landed, which was a pilot shot in Budapest in Hungary, and it was a CW pilot, which is the same network that um, that does Vampire Diaries. And I was I got cast as the lead in that, and that was a grueling screen testing process where I did about six different rounds of auditions. I even had to fly out to Hungary and do a couple of days wow. of testing, hair, makeup, costume, screen test, you know, standard. And, you know, you got to sign this agreement beforehand that tells you what you're getting paid, what you're going to do before you even get the part of that stage. So there's a daunting nature to that. It's like, here you go. These are all the fine print. Now sign it if you want to do the test. Fuck. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So potentially (laughs) five years of my life in Budapest. Okay, fine. (laughs) Wow. And um, it uh, didn't end up going because of political reasons. It was far better than some of the stuff they put on instead. But basically, because of that, I had all of these agents in L.A. And I only had management in the U.K. at this point in time. And um, I, I go shoot the pilot. It doesn't go. And I had all these agents wanting to meet me and sign me. And I was like, no, no, we'll see how the pilot goes. And then I'll see after that. And after the pilot didn't go, all those agents mysteriously left the scene. They didn't want anything to do with me, except one. So Jeff Goldenberg from Silver Lining Collective, he flew to London and said, I want to meet you anyway. I watched the pilot. You've got the goods. Let's have some lunch. So he flies out to England uh, from L.A. And first of all, I thought that was a pretty cool gesture. Definitely. And um, he basically was like, look, there's not much to it. There's not much to think about. Like, just, you know, we get started and we get going and we see where it goes. I'll start sending you stuff straight away. And I just was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And um, the rest was history. I'm still with him. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. I love that yeah. uh, that, that connection has stayed this long. I, I think those keeping people like that around is always great because you always know that they're actually in it for all the right reasons that they stayed with you this long and they're, you, That's know, right. you have a great relationship. It's about building career. And um, I think there's, there is a danger when you jump ship and sign on with someone else that they're not signing on to you, but what you represent, what you've created, your story so far, as opposed to you as a human being. But I've always kept my whole team pretty much, except my London agents who I let go of. But just it was just becoming a logistical nightmare with three different agencies, you know. Yeah, that seems tough to juggle just in general. But because of uh, Um, the selection, basically, just to answer your question there, um, the CW took note of me, obviously, as an actor. And so they started sending me some random things. I got three different auditions for Vampire Diaries before getting cast as Enzo. And um, that one was, was the one that broke me into the American TV circuit before that. Right. Cause you were on that show for four years, which is a great mm-hmm. run. Yeah. yeah. And you and that was filmed. What was that filmed in Georgia? I feel like you t- maybe said that at one point. Yeah. Yeah. It was filmed was here that in filmed? Atlanta. Yeah. Atlanta, Covington, around, around yeah. there. And so when that show ended, do you, do you, I saw you went on and then you did, uh, you did that show, The Oath, for, for a bit. Um, mm-hmm. And Rico. then now, and then, 
Yeah. And then uh, you and I, you know, obviously got to know each other right right before, I think, the first season of Project Blue Book came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in between in between seasons, that's when we met. Before before we wrap up the show, which we, which we could do here in a minute, but I'm curious uh, though, have you had any of inkling? Um, you know, looking at all, the amount of plays you did and stuff like that. You know, it's been now eight years since you've taken the stage in that capacity. Do you ever miss it, or is, do you feel like it's just kind of in your past and you're and you're happily moved on from it? Well, I'd, I'd always love to go back to theater. You know, but never say never. I, I basically uh, have mouths to feed now <laughs> and a certain part of me. Congrats, by the way, two kids. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, that's, that's been the real game changer is having kids just to, for me, uh, toning it down, not biting off more than I can chew, not trying to do everything and please everyone. You know, I've got, I've got my work cut out here. And this whole COVID yeah. thing has really made me realize just how much time I was spending away and not giving what I was giving to everyone else to my family. So I started right. realizing how much I had this desire inside to raise my kids. And now I had a chance to do it. Now I have a chance to do it. And I guess it's uh, not to go too deep, but it's it's been so rewarding and has made me a lot more selfless as a, an artist as well and um when it's time to work i fucking put my gloves on and i go and because <laughs> i'm grateful because i have that time to do it you know like i wrote this song evergreen for for the no crisp no no sleep till christmas no sleep uh compilation and it was right. one of those things where i was like i need a day i just need a day babe just to crank this out and, and crush it <laughs> and we're like all right all right so i was in the garage screaming my head off and uh crunched, crushed it out, you know, and, uh, nowadays inspiration is something I have to plan. Whereas it used to be, Oh, Oh, I got something. Grab the guitar and disappear for an hour or two. Whereas now it's like, yeah. okay, I need to plan that time. But the song turned out right. cool and we, we established a good relationship. I know you did some stuff with no sleep as well. Um, some of your, yeah, I know stuff, Chris right? pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, seems like a good dude. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really cool to see you were a part of that comp. It looks like you've also been just pretty busy with music in general this last year because you put out a record this year, 2020, right? Mm -hmm. And Managed then to do a tour you've had an e somehow. <laughs> yeah, good for you. And yeah. then you did uh you had like a two song thing, and then now you have now you have this. Uh, so I'm sure it also that's you know in that capacity, it's kind of nice to tune down and and just kind of put out music and and show out that show off that other side of your career and your life uh you know with with um getting just to focus on music in general yeah well i mean for me that's one thing i can actually control and control and not in a negative way but you know it's something i can actually control the output of i can make stuff and put it out and with acting so much of it relies on someone else's project that you're latching onto, getting casted and cast in. Um, so this, this is something I've always been blessed to have that I can fall back on when I'm waiting. And, um, it, you know, as a creative person, and I'm sure you can testify too, if you're not creating in a week, you get depressed or something, you know, you, or at least thinking about creating or have something on the plate. And um, I'm, I feel blessed to be able to have have music alongside the acting to kind of juggle back and forth when when one is stagnant. Absolutely, I can only imagine. So, 
Um, I like to wrap up every show with with this question, and I'm and I'd be curious to hear your answer because you are an actor and a musician. But do you remember the first time where you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards? I I'm sure we could actually do a music one and a and a acting mm. one if uh, you have those. I think for me the first music one was probably that show at Wilton's Music Hall, the release of my first public EP, Feed the Flames, because it was the first record vinyl, 10-inch, you know, but vinyl in general that I held in my hands that had my name on it, you know, and seeing that boxes of them turn up at the theater door was, was a moment. But also no playing other, to us. No better yeah. feeling, man. Oh, incredible. So cool. You open it up, the smell, you, the picture, and everything is written properly. That's so nice. You saw, <laughs> you saw them the day of the show? Like you got yeah. them the day of the show? Literally. Oh, that, wow. That's, that's magical. Roll, man. Everything's by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> but it yeah, gets I would be panicking I, I all day. Like, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, try, I got a good guy in my corner, you know, so uh, we work together and uh, Danny Keir, he's a good dude. And he's, he's my second brain as far as my music career goes. He helps me to keep things in line. And um, yeah, them turning up and also playing to a sold out house. Everybody's screaming along to your songs. Um, and it was amazing and magical and made me realize, yes, this is a trajectory that I need to continue. And I would have done it anyway. But um, I, it was definitely one of those moments that you're talking about. And as far as acting goes, oh, man, I don't know. I think it was actually probably recently. Because I've, I've fought a lot. Acting has been a love-hate relationship the entire time I've been a professional actor. And I think you have to, you almost have to believe your shit a little bit in order to get better um, in a way. And I think I've always felt I've always wrestled with feelings of doubt, feeling like it's landing, you know, or feeling un just generally uncomfortable. Um, and doing Blue Book was where I finally was able to completely let go of any anxiety I had around acting um, or worry about how it's coming across and just play the truth. And not that I didn't do that before, but I honestly think I probably didn't. I feel like I was doing a good job. You know, all my stuff on Vampire Diaries, I can watch it back. I'm like, yeah, that's that's all right for that show. But I would have done it better now. And I, I think it's, it, for me, Blue Book and having center stage like that. And me and Aiden, the way we work together, like I said, is playing into the other. And when you're given so much as an actor and you give too, you create something greater than what's on the page. And I feel like our relationship on and off screen on in Blue Book is is what sealed the deal for me and made me just so much stronger as a as a performer, as an as an actor. So kudos to Aiden. He's a good dude. He's really into music too. We connected on that. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so thank you so much for your time today. This is uh I love this. This is a great conversation. Um I uh, I hope we can see each other, you know, before the world completely ends, you know. No, it's not ending anytime soon. All right, have a good, have yourself a good day. All right, brother. Later on, you too. Bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. And if you can spare a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple, it helps the show gain more visibility, and that can make all the difference. Thank you, and I'll see you again next week. Yeah.